Who is Brendan Burns? Yeah. Nice. Very philosophical. <laughs> My background is I grew up, I was born in Manhattan which is where I live currently. But when I was about four years old, my parents took me out to Long Island, which is a suburb about an hour outside the city. And uh, that's where I grew up. And growing up, I always had this close relationship with my grandfather on my dad's side. He was um, a politician and a lawyer, and he was very involved with charities. And he, for example, like the Boys and Girls Club, of America. He was like the president of that organization for a while. And he, uh, he took me on all these trips, like all over more like the country than the globe. Cause I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, but we went to Alaska. Cal- Six year olds travel the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we, he took us, I, it was usually me, him and my grandma. And we went to like California, Alaska, Texas, London, and we always like had these very differentiated experiences because he knew people like on the ground over there through the organizations that he was involved with. So like when we went to Alaska, we did Juno for a few days, but then we had someone like drive us up and then we took a plane into the Arctic circle and we were on these random boats, like in the middle of nowhere going four wheeling and seeing like local caribou, which is like the closest animal to real reindeer. And He also was very, like, encouraging of trying very adventurous types of foods. And he would always say to me, like, you don't have to like it. You don't have to take a second bite, but you have to take a first bite of kind of everything that he would put in front of me. And and then it was always, like, because I was kind of a picky eater initially but then it would always turn into uh fine i'll take this one bite of this ostrich and then i like bite into like a little piece and i was like this is great and um it would turn into like alligator and all sorts of different crazy things but i think you know whenever you're exposed to anything at a young age it sort of builds that interest and comfort with it so like when my friends asked me how did i go to japan china and hong kong like by myself with a backpack and you know not spend a bazillion dollars and how did you feel comfortable doing it alone and i think it's because you know at a young age i was very fortunate to be exposed to that but so that was just kind of like along the way i got to do some traveling and then i wound up going to cornell for college and grad school which is in upstate new york and my junior year i was very lucky one of my friends wanted to go abroad to barcelona and I was sort of like indifferent and I had also I was good with Spanish growing up like my dad we're all like white Jews like when I tell people that my dad speaks Spanish they, people think that like I'm half you know something <laughs> but he actually lived in um, Colombia Bogota for a semester of his college and he I think that really changed him as a person and gave him more of like made him a bit more of like a global citizen and more open minded to other cultures and traveling and so on and he also came back uh, fluent in Spanish because he lived with a family that spoke no English which is always like the best way to do it and so growing up between him and then school and college I was you know not fluent but I was like right there and then when I went to Barcelona I wound up going for the semester um, that got my Spanish basically to the fluent level and also that experience was amazing because it 
turned me I don't want to say turned me off of like America but turned me on to like <laughs> no because it's easy to like hate on America but it is a great hey, country listen no judgment <laughs> no I mean there are so many great things about our country and sometimes leaving the country and when I travel and then I come back I'm like oh my god our infrastructure you know what was available to me through public education and healthcare and everything it's a lot to be grateful for but there are certain things like especially in New York, when you talk about work-life balance, for example, where you see a totally different, because basically when I graduated in 2012, I've been working in finance for the last four years, basically. And um, it's having that perspective and experience of living in Barcelona and seeing that there's uh, another way to do it, where like here we live to work, there they work to live. Um, that was amazing. And the other thing was just being like in a hub where for four or five months, every weekend, if I wanted to, I could buy like a Ryanair flight to, you know, Munich or Sweden or wherever for like a hundred euros. Um, it was a great opportunity to see pretty much all of Western Europe with some exceptions. Um, you know, the main cities, of course, not everywhere, but that was great. And then I came back and then I finished up college. I did grad school. I did a joint law school and MBA program. Um, yeah, it was a lot. It was great. I'll always have it. But basically, when I moved to New York City, like I sort of grew up, even though I was 24, 25 in law school, it's still, you know, parents are paying for things. You don't really have a concept of like money and life and stuff like that. So then when I moved to Manhattan in the summer of 2012, that's when I grew up and I developed as a person and professionally and I guess over the past two years or so, like I did my first solo trip because what happened was I would go like to travel every opportunity I got to sort of have those experiences I did from Barcelona and from growing up. And usually I had friends who were down to go on trips with me, but then it started to get to a point where I wanted to like do an international trip every four day weekend, spring break, everything. Um, I'm volunteering to be travel buddy, just so you know. Yeah, let's do it. I'm so down. Um, I've actually converted some of my friends who were like typical American, like, go to Florida, Vegas types. And I have one of my friends, he's coming with me to Japan in two weeks. Nice. And he's been to Europe, but without me, like he definitely wouldn't have gone to Asia. And we're, we actually have to split off for timing reasons. So he's going to be in Japan by himself. So I like to think I've helped spread the word a little bit, but no, it got to a point where it was like, I was like, I have to travel. I can't just wait for other people to be available. So my first solo trip, I went on Facebook and I did a search for all my friends who lived outside the U.S., and I found like my top 10 friends who I knew the mo- like closest friends living outside the U S and it was friends from school or abroad, like living in Australia, Norway, Vienna. And I wrote them all basically copy and paste like, Hey, you know, long time, no talk. How are you? I'm going to be like right by you this Christmas, which was like, I would set it up so I would be near them. 
are you around? And I sort of just like ranked responses based on like warmest, friendliest. <laughs> and uh, my friend Toby from Cornell, he was Nor- he's Norwegian and he was living in Oslo at the time. And he was like, yo, Brendan, come stay with me in Oslo for free. I'll show you the city for two days. Then we're going to go up to Sandefjord, which is this like random part of Norway where he grew up two hours away. So he's like, we'll do Norwegian road trip. You'll celebrate Christmas with my family, Norwegian style. Um, And I was just like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And what I did was I flew to Iceland first for a couple days and then, and I did that. And that was like my first real time alone, uh, which I totally fell in love for like a million different reasons. And then from there I took a flight to Finland for like a day and a half. And then I met Toby in Norway and we did like four or five days and I flew home and I was like, I'm never traveling with another person again (laughs) (laughs) because you have all this freedom and flexibility and you can do whatever you want i mean there's i mean pros and cons again like after doing a couple solo trips i kind of missed all the pros of actually having people to travel with and lately i would say i'm probably like 60 40 70 30 skewed towards going with people but but that was a really meaningful experience for me to get back into solo travel so that was kind of like christmas 2014 and then from there i sort of knew that i wanted to be my own boss like i read four hour work week by tim ferris uh do you know that i i know of it i've never okay that you should definitely put that on your list after the <laughs> after the documentary. Okay. Those might be like my two favorite people or like most influential people or they're you know way up there top 5 for sure. And that book I read while I was in law school and it sort of like planted a seed in the back of my brain that was like, you shouldn't be a lawyer. You should like do what Tim Ferriss does, which is travel and earn passive income and blog and invest and just be like sort of like the YOLO attitude, but like while also being an adult and like making sure to have an income. But that book was amazing. And yeah, so like by 2015, I started thinking more seriously about entrepreneurship. And I was like, how can I be my own boss? I work in an industry where it's not uncommon to be like a billionaire. So I was like, because I work for a hedge fund now. And I was like, I don't want to be like this. I don't need or want billions. I want you know, to make just to like clear six figures if possible. And then like be my own boss and be able to work remotely. Like that was what really appealed to me was like to just have a laptop and a backpack and, and just like be able to go and work remotely. And I've struggled with like, you know, what does a home base look like for me? But at the end of the day, like just having that freedom and flexibility to see the world and be more entrepreneurial was what I wanted. So I spent a lot of time thinking about starting my own hedge fund. And then I sort of learned the hard way after probably a good six months to a year of like making a push in that area that you need to really love the type of work that you do day to day. You can't just like start a business just for the sake of being your own boss if you don't really love it, or at least that was my experience. And I sort of realized like stocks and investing, it's something I'm good at, but it's not really what I wake up every day and get fired up about. 
So my personal trainer, who since has become a good friend and we just worked out today, he sat me down and he's like, make a list of like the 10 things that you love doing. He's like, or he's like every time. And this is also came from a separate life training course that I did with another guy, uh, Jack Canfield. He wrote chicken noodle soup for the soul. And I took like one of his audio courses on my phone just like with the headphones, like commuting to work and stuff. And he said, make an iPhone note. And anytime you do something that makes you feel like really alive or giddy or like a little kid or whatever, just write it down, just write down what you did. Like it's not, you know, complicated exercise. And then after like two months of doing that, I went back and like everything was like related to food, travel, hanging out with friends, biking, being outdoors, just like, all that stuff. So then I shared it with my trainer and he, he basically told me like, look, you can make money online doing this. Um, so it started with an Instagram account, which I've grown a lot. And then sort of the, the story of 2016 to just like wrap up, like who is Brendan Burns? <laughs> Cause I know it's probably been like 20 minutes <laughs> is that's taken me to like 2016, which is I launched a website. I launched, well, I've, you know, I've built up the Instagram and basically my goal is to like build up this into like a travel food related business to, uh, you know, replace my income at the hedge fund. So, you know, within the next year or so I could ideally leave and then just turn this into my full-time job. And then the final thing I know I said I was done, but one more is I have, not launched, but I've copied my template and I'm going to set up a second website and business most likely, which is all, which is related more to like the Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield stuff I'm doing, which is all about like personal growth and helping people and happiness, which at first I was kind of like weaving into the main website, like in the end of two of my articles, I have sort of like what I learned from traveling here. And I talk about meditating and yoga or whatever, but I think you know, at least for right now, I'm going to make that sort of its own site because I've gotten really into that. And ever since I started doing therapy a few years ago and meditating and yoga and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I'll stop there. Maybe I should just come work for you instead. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to have you. I, I don't make it, I don't make any money, but if you want to, uh, if you want to bootstrap it with me, we could probably fit, fit one more in my home office. Uh, is it home? I actually own, so um, you can pick up the other room if you want a home office. Just kidding. <laughs> nice. Um, so you're uh, down in Colombia. Is that why you went over there? Um, so that definitely had a lot to do with it because he always talked about that experience like very positively and he was always very close and connected to the Latin American culture because of that experience. And, you know, obviously with the people from Latin America, especially in New York city, um, it just felt sort of like a second home or close to home for me. Um, Interesting. So that was one, yeah. And so that was one reason. And then reason number two was one of my good friends who really has, you know, the courage. He like, I don't even think he's ever had a real job. He literally from college just went, I think he like ski bummed or he worked some job in Vail, Colorado for a few months and just said, screw it and bought like a one way ticket to Cambodia. And he did like the Southeast Asia thing, which I've actually never done. 
you know, I, I did like, I've been to Malaysia, I've been to Singapore, but I've never like properly or even ever been to like Vietnam, Thailand, or I definitely want to do like a whole thing over there. But he is always someone who I like reach out to for advice. Cause I used to reach out to people like it, it's, some of my family so I'm just in New York City and I'm like you know I'm really burnt out like and everyone in New York's just like you know just toughen up like make partner you know it's always like very corporate so I go to Keith and I'm like you know hey I'm sort of feeling like this and he's like just go book the ticket he always gives me like that perspective which I love and I I was just like it was like July Fourth weekend and I could take a couple days from work so I was like you know I could I could squeeze out a week trip you know, like a week long trip. Uh, I was looking Costa Rica, something like that. And he's like, Oh, you know, that's such a well-worn, like everyone's been to Costa Rica. It's so touristy. He's like, uh, yeah. And I mean, he's the type of guy who like, he was just in Egypt and he was like on a random bus in like Alexandria and he like got invited to some wedding in like the middle of Egypt. And he went, so he's like pretty hardcore. And he told me, that his, I had been, I went to Argentina and Brazil in 2012 with a friend, um, like right when I graduated grad school. So I had been to South America before, but not really like the Ecuador, Colombia, uh, Bolivia type countries. So he was like, look, I think you'll have a lot more fun. And from his personal experience, he like, he thought the South America, it was like much more authentic. And he just was like really positive on Colombia specifically. Um, and a lot of people are, you know, I think it's one of those like hidden gems because unfortunately what happened with the whole Pablo Escobar era, um, and I did a lot of research after going and I watched the whole Narcos Netflix show so I could like, you know, go on about that if you're interested. But I, um, basically I was, I'm into that. Like I'm actually, you know, trying to go to some other pretty adventurous places like in the middle East that most people wouldn't consider. And I was like totally into that. And I also had friends who went to Cartagena and really liked it and said it was like totally safe. So I actually did Cartagena and Medellin and, um, I was genuinely a little scared about Medellin just because going on Airbnb, like most of it was not in English and like there weren't a lot of reviews for places, but, but I did my homework. And I am fluent in Spanish and I spoke a ton of Spanish in Medellin and, but Medellin was totally safe. It was amazing. It was like, everyone was so nice. I had some of my most positive experiences in terms of people being warm with me in Medellin and Cartagena. Like, Medellin, I'm in like city center because like I didn't take a cab. I took like the you know three dollar bus to Medellin city center just to get that experience, and then from there try to hail a cab. But you know people don't realize Medellin has four million people, including the metro area. So you're talking about like almost a New York City in a valley in Colombia, and it was so dense and so many people, which I loved, but also it was like impossible to get a cab. And my bus driver like gets off the bus. He like parks the bus and he's like helping me with his other friend who's another bus driver, a hail cab for like 10 minutes and we can't find one. So then he found a bus for me, talked to that bus driver, told him not to charge me. And then that took me to like a area where I could basically hail a cab from. He was taking me basically to a, stop, a bus stop that had a cab stand. And it was just insanely amazing. And like, I would say to be careful in Medellin because there are some areas that are still dangerous. 
but I stayed in Poblado, which is like a very nice, um, more upscale area where there's like really no violence at all from what I hear. And yeah, it was just one of those like secret hidden gem trips that went from like not really putting much thought or effort into the planning plus um being a little scared about going to be honest to just having you know one of my best trips i think i've ever had that's interesting to me too so i do know people from medellin and um they so we actually used to have a partner that was based there but it's since been bought out so i i don't think they're a partner anymore but you know all the guys used to come here during like the user conferences and they were all like dude you should just come all that stuff about drugs that's that's like 10 years ago it's all made over and then once i started seeing their facebook pictures it was like really green and hills and they'd be like oh this is my view i'm all okay i need to go Oh, you should totally go. I mean, if you're ever interested, like, so the guy I stayed with, and it's like also another reason why I love Airbnb, because in Cartagena, I was hosted by this Venezuelan couple, which was amazing because I got to learn so much about Venezuela too. And they, and like this woman, she had like incredible reviews on Airbnb. So when I stayed with her, she just like totally blew me out of the water with how good she was. She like invited me to coffee my first morning, came with a map and for like an hour, just like showed me everything to do, including like hidden things, things you couldn't find in guidebooks. Then she had like a friend who does these tours in, uh, of this market that it's not really like safe to go to alone. And he couldn't take me that day. He was busy. So she took me with her husband. They were like this young, early thirties couple and they gave me a tour and they bought me lunch and they paid for the cabs. And I mean, obviously I left them like a really nice tip, but I just couldn't believe it. It was incredible how amazing that was. And then I get to Medellin and I stayed with an expat. Uh, it was actually a, a guy from Thailand who grew up on the East coast and he, uh, he lives down there and he's like 40 and he looks like he's like 27. He looks younger than me. And, uh, he owns a place and I stayed in it and it was like a four or five bedroom, ridiculous luxury apartment, keyless entry, amazing views flat screen everything and i think it was like 60 us dollars a night to stay there and it was in poblado which is the best area he had like his doorman had like a car come like take me to the airport you should definitely go to Medellin. In my okay. in the article on my website, I talk about I basically did this not full but like pretty challenging like four or five hour bike tour um, with this guy from Texas originally, and that was incredible just to bike the whole city. But yeah, Medellin's great. I loved it. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> So it's interesting, though, that you said you became fluent in Spanish in Barcelona because they speak Catalan, don't they? Yeah, so that, I was definitely worried about going to, abroad to Barcelona because I was like, isn't kind of the purpose or at least part of the purpose to like, you know, learn a new language or improve a language that you've been building upon? And and my friend didn't really do a lot of research, but he was like, you know, yeah, they speak Catalan, but like, I think it's close to Spanish, um, which is totally untrue. It's completely different. And like, you know, it's honestly more French than Spanish in a lot of ways, but I don't, I mean, I speak a word of Catalan. I mean, I probably know five, 10 words, but I literally speak no Catalan at all. Like I couldn't even do one sentence, but a lot of people, I would say it's like 50, 50, in terms of people speaking Catalan versus like Castilian traditional Spanish. 
maybe not 50 50 because that's like i would say it's like 100 percent of people speak traditional spanish and that's the main language in barcelona and then like of everyone who speaks Spanish, maybe like 30% to 50% also know Catalan because they grew up in Barcelona. Because if you're from like Granada in the South, for example, or if you're from Seville, you don't know Catalan. But how many people who live in Chicago are from Chicago? You have a lot, but you also have a lot of people from New York or California or Iowa who come to a bigger city. And if you didn't grow up in Barcelona, you don't generally you don't speak Catalan so I actually lived in a dorm with students going to University of Barcelona and so they, none of them really spoke Catalan like one who was like really advanced with his language skills was like learning Catalan but in Barcelona it's it's definitely Spanish like 100% so and you I, from what I remember there were a lot of people from Latin America actually coming to Barcelona because it was a great city and it had sometimes it had better job opportunities and they loved it because it's like it's the same language yeah. So, yeah, it, it was, yeah, there's a lot of Spanish happening in Barcelona. I mean, I, I remember using it. I just, for some reason, was like, hmm, that's, that's a funny place to pick it up fluently. But, um, yeah, yeah. So I made a couple of random notes. I need to be friends with Toby. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's the best. He, he lives in Dublin now. Um, oh, wow. He works for, Go- yeah, he works for Google. He's amazing, and I can definitely introduce you to him. He actually helped me with my website, and he's someone I want to like talk to more because obviously working for Google is always helpful. But no, he's he's a great guy, great friend, and um, I lo- yeah, he made my trip to Norway special. Aww. So um, you uh, you know you mentioned the four hour work week and this passive income. Um, and is that why, that's why you started the travel site is to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I basically, my trainer was pushing me to get into Instagram because once I crossed like 10,000 followers, he saw that it was like growing pretty quickly. Now I'm at like 21,000, I think, but he was always in favor of me building that up and trying to get branding deals and so on there, like sponsored posts, which I still may do, but I recalled having this friend who I actually interviewed um, for my hedge fund job to be like another employee there. And he, uh, he wasn't like the right fit, but we stayed in touch. We, we stayed friends. And I remember like we caught up about a year and a half ago and he was telling me how he works at a big bank, like on wall street and he makes like, you know, 250 grand there, but then he runs these websites on the side doing like search engine optimization stuff. And he made like 300 grand just like doing that with his partner. And, um, yeah. And I was like, Holy crap. So I reached back out to him, um, basically around February of this year, January, February, cause that's when I started thinking about my business. And I was like, like, can I do this? Like, is this real? Like my friend's telling me about Instagram and like, you know, I read this book about entrepreneurship and I just want to be my own boss and like make money. And, uh, he's like, Oh yeah, it's totally doable. Um, and he was the one who really gave me confidence because, um, what he did was he came over to my apartment and he started showing me some websites and showing me like income reports because some of these websites post their income reports. And I was seeing things like a hundred grand a month or like a million unique visitors a month. And, you know, obviously 
that's not easy and that's like you know these are guys who've been doing this for like five ten years and they you know put out great content and like they really know what they're doing um but my friend sunil who showed me all this that was kind of when i was like wow i could actually you know i can make this real and you know granted it takes time and a lot of hard work um because i've probably worked more on my website and on this stuff over the past six months than like just about anything you know the law school or whatever it's it's a lot but um I kind of, you know, hopefully we'll see a light at the end of the tunnel and uh, I, I feel momentum and I feel good about it. You know, if I put it in like a solid this, up, you know, the next year or so, um, I think it's definitely something that's feasible to at least generate like a comfortable income, um, you know, as I move, as I transition into something like I'm more passionate about. Good gosh. Um, you sound like you're like a hundred years old, but you don't look that old. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, I love that whole. You know, I want to wake up passionate, and and uh, you know, just this this is not what excites me. So I kind of have gone through that, right? Or I mean, I've gone through some similar stuff. So I'm, I'm a little envious of where you are now, but we're not going to go into that. Um, Hey, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, like everyone starts or everyone's in a different place in life, but that doesn't mean that you can't move towards it. And honestly, like, I think that, and I'm sort of parroting like Tony Robbins here from his documentary, but having something to move towards is like the most important thing in your life. That's what like drives motivation and happiness and like getting you to jump out of bed. Like if you already had the website and you were making millions, you probably like find new things that other people have or like, I'm sure you'd be happy. Don't get me wrong. But, um, I think it's really exciting to be in a position where you are, where I am, where it's like, I'm definitely not there yet either. Like I've made, you know, in total $135 on my website, plus a couple free meals. And I've made, (laughs) well, you start somewhere. Um, but you know, I don't know. It's just exciting. And I, I'm trying to convert fear and stress that I have about it into gratitude and excitement for what the future holds. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit. So you, I mean, you obviously have kind of, you've grown up traveling and you've had all these great experiences, but was there like a moment when you were like, I, I'm in love with traveling. That's a great question that nobody's really asked me. So defining moment, I mean, I think for sure it was some, it was about, um, it was definitely like starting in 2014 when I started with the solo travel and I just remember being in Reykjavik and I was like, I had, it was like my first night in Reykjavik. Like I basically did one of those like overnight flights and I went straight to the blue lagoon first and I was like floating in like geothermal hot springs and that was amazing. And then I checked into the, to my Airbnb and I had like a plan to go on like one of those Northern lights bus tours that evening at like midnight. So I took a nap and it was maybe like four or 5 PM and I, I like popped on the trip advisor. I found a restaurant for dinner. So I just like went and I ate dinner and then I was like, Oh, you know, let me walk into town and like explore a little bit. So I'm like in Reykjavik and I'm like listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast and they're talking about like travel and like entrepreneurship. And I'm just like, 
totally winging it. I'm like, like using Google Maps on my phone. And like, I don't know if you've been, have you been to Iceland? No. It's on my list. Okay. Definitely go. And uh, it's just like, you know, there's certain parts where like, it's just like a huge road and there's like no sidewalk. And like, for example, when I first got to the bus station in Reykjavik, there was like, I couldn't find any taxis or anything. It was just like these like big, brawly, like Icelandic men. And I was like, excuse me, like, can I, like, where do I get a ride? And they just like knock me over and I'm just like on the ground and like, I don't know where the hell I'm going. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I go on Google Maps. And my Airbnb was like a mile away. So I was like, fine, 20 minutes walking. So I started walking and I realized there's no road. And um, thank God I had my boots with me, like, you know, big, like really like industrial boots, like the ones like for the huge snowstorms. And I'm like holding my like, you know, Wheeler suitcase, which is like not that light over my head because the snow was like up to my knee. And I'm just in this like field, like a ran feel I know that if I cross the field I'll be going in the right direction and like hopefully hit a sidewalk at some point but I mean you're it's just like you're totally winging it and I was like this is crazy but like I loved it and then once I like got out of that field and like hopped the fence a random bus came like a public bus I jumped on it having no idea what was happening and I was like praying like please take me like where I need to go I get on the bus it starts going in totally the wrong direction I'm like oh I'm so screwed and then it goes on to one of those like highway ramps where it pulls a complete 180 and then it and suddenly it's now going in the exact correct direction that I needed and then five minutes later it stops and lets me out like right in front of my Airbnb and I was just like wow that's like travel where you go from like having no clue and being totally screwed to like boom everything's amazing and that was really fun but then it was like the next that night when I was sort of wandering around Reykjavik and I was like I saw the big church and downtown and I just felt like I was on another planet I was like this is totally amazing I'm in Iceland alone with Google Maps like listening to this podcast and I was just like I felt so in the zone so alive so much energy like flowing through my body that I was just that was like a turning point where I got into solo travel and I got way more into travel in general to go back to what I was saying earlier about how like I think I pushed it maybe was I think I was doing first of all I was just doing a lot of maybe too much solo travel rather than other people and I was like going to places where I didn't really know anybody and it was almost like I was just trying to disconnect from things that were causing me pain back in New York, like my current job or, you know, certain friendships that I've been in the process of changing. And I now really only hang out with people who are like really supportive and positive energy people. But I was going through some like friend breakups and I was struggling with a job that was really taxing on me, like emotionally and, you know, also physically um, with the amount of hours I was working. So I felt like to some extent I was like escapism traveling and I'm trying to pull back and like find that healthy balance um, where I can create a life that I enjoy back in New York, but also go out and have great experiences on the road too. But I would say like, yeah, that Iceland trip was pretty defining for me. Okay. I was trying to frantically type in a lot of what you were saying. It's okay. <laughs> Thank God this well, is recorded. Yeah, so, you got the recording. Yeah, but now I got to, like, find it again. <laughs> so, 
So, um, you know, you visited Japan last year and you said you're going back, but, um, what is it about the country that you love so much? Just, well, top, let's say top three things. Um, that's an amazing question. And, uh, it's something I get a lot because like, I love traveling and I feel like I've been to a good amount of places, but for some reason, Japan really like, I really felt connected to it, especially Tokyo, which I went to for the first time last August. And, you know, I could have gone anywhere in the world for this trip in two weeks. And I chose to go see more of Japan as a big part of that trip. And I would say, Number one, and this is not in order because I, I try not to be like too obsessed with food these days and like make it just as much about travel and culture as food. But I mean, I, I have to say for one of the three, the food for sure. Um, and I can talk about food in general or Japanese food for like hours. So just cut me off if I'm rambling. But uh, but no, I mean. If you watch, there's a, another Netflix documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, yeah, put it on the list. <laughs> this list is getting really long. I know. We'll have to, like, wait for a few weeks. Like, you have homework. But, no, so that documentary basically chronicles the life of um, Jiro Ono, who is a world-famous sushi chef who runs a three-Michelin-star sushi counter that is based in a train station in Tokyo. And I went when I went uh, back in August of last year. But I also saw a lot more of the culture of Japanese food. And I think Japan has more Michelin star restaurants than the U.S. and France. It's just really, like, deep-rooted in their culture. Sushi is not the only thing that Japanese cuisine has to offer. There is so much more than sushi going on in Japan, which I love. You know, you have katsu, tempura, ramen, like Kobe beef, like Hokkaido. Kaido is a huge seafood haven, which is the big island up in the north. And so, yeah, food. I'll stop there. Colin Nass actually, I think, just did a whole uh, Hokkaido article. I mean, yeah. I'll double check that, but. Yeah, Hokkaido is like all over. It's like, it, Hokkaido is like the hot thing right now. Like, I think it was, it's like one of the travel, like not TripAdvisor, but one of those things they just rated Hokkaido like the number one place for 2016 um, to visit and I actually have friends who are going up there in a couple of weeks too I definitely want to get there at some point and like for example when you have uni which is Japanese for sea urchin um, they're famous for their sea urchin so like a lot of times if you go to a high-end sushi restaurant in New York City they'll come out of Hokkaido uni or Hokkaido octopus and I used to like never know what that meant and it's like oh okay it's from Hokkaido which is because all it's up in the north and Japan gets pretty high up in the north like you can go uh, like skiing up there and the water is like very cold right off the shore and apparently that like preserves the flavor and makes the seafood taste better um, so that's I think one of the reasons why people like Hokkaido uh, sea urchin but I would say, like, why else Japan? I mean, <laughs> there's definitely, I mean, I love big cities. Like, I was born on, like, you know, the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I sort of love high-energy, fast-paced environments. So, like, Tokyo just totally blew my mind when I walked out of the Shinjuku station. And, like, it's like, you know, it's like Times Square, but, like, even bigger. And there's so much electricity and energy, and I just, like, felt the connection in my body to the city that I've only got really in a couple places um 
and I, I just totally fell in love with it. So just maybe like the food, the energy. And then the third thing is just like something about like the people, whether it's like the culture, the, the politeness, um, the mannerisms, like the Japanese bow is still like very much in a full effect and people like bow and they're so nice and friendly and respectful. Um, you know, sometimes I felt like it was a bit much. Like, for example, um, in the onsens, which are like the spas uh, where it's like, you know, um, you're not allowed to have tattoos um, at all, like on your body. Like, and most of them, I think you have to be naked. So, like, they'll know, even if it's like a little like thing on your butt. Um, so, I think that's like maybe a little bit outdated. And some of the older Japanese folks, like at some of the restaurants, um, it can be a little too stuffy, quiet, like anti-social, which, cause like in America, like food and like hanging out, it's like very much intertwined. Whereas at some of these like higher end restaurants, like it's very like old and stuffy. And like, if you don't speak Japanese, you feel excluded and it's like no phones are allowed. And, you know, I think maybe in America we've taken it a bit far where like I'll go to a bar with my friends and they're like, we're eating burgers and they're like on one knee, like doing a chug of like a beer and like, you know, that may be a little bit like too Americanized, but I think on the other extreme is like where you're sort of like a robot and you like have to like eat the piece and then like put it back and they're like, you know, so I didn't love that, but I would say overall, like just the tradition and like old school and politeness, I think would be the third thing. Cool. Uh, so do you thoroughly feel like you've just applied for up to be like a presidential candidate or what? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I thank you very much. It's very flattering. Your go-to travel hack. Ooh, that's a good question. I have so many. You know, I'm just uh, so full of good questions. Yeah, you are. Go-to travel hack. I would say, like, if I had to, like, say the top two or three, like, one is definitely uh, Google Flights and being flexible. So you, I don't know if you do you use Google Flights. Nope. Okay. Well, what you can do is you can um, based on like I like to have fun with it. So if I know that I have uh, a week in like October that I can take off, I'll go onto Google Flights and I'll set the dates and I'll say start in New York, ending blank, and you click on the map and it shows you the world and it shows you um, you know anywhere like and basically you can say below a thousand dollar round trip fare or nonstop flights only or under five hour flights only. And the map will only have the cities lit up of, like, where flights meet that criteria. So you can, like, when I was in Copenhagen, for example, I was there for, like, almost a week. Um, and I didn't really know anyone there. And it was, like, I kind of hit all the main sites. And I was, like, where can I go for a day trip? That would be fun, thinking I would, like, hop on a train somewhere. And... I jump on Google Flights and I go, show me all round trips, uh, Copenhagen, like day trips, where the flight is under an hour and a half and the cost is like under $200 or under $150. And it had Warsaw, Poland and uh, Riga in Latvia, which sounded amazing, but I think there was like a connecting flight required. So... I woke up at like 6 a.m. on like one of my second to last day in Copenhagen uh, with just like literally me, no bag, no anything. Um, I had like a, a boarding pass on my phone for like $100. I took a tr public transport to the airport, which was like 20 minutes away, flew to Poland, 
did a full day in Poland, like ate at the number one TripAdvisor restaurant for like $20 or something like ridiculous, uh, walked around, took pictures, and then like six o'clock, I actually walked to the airport because like it's like sort of right in the city. And it was also freezing, but it was like a great experience to see what those like Polish winters are like. And I just like got on a plane and flew back to Copenhagen and came home at like eight or nine o'clock at night. And my host guy from Airbnb was like, Oh, Hey Brendan, like, how was your day? What did you do? And I was like, Oh, I just went to Poland. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like the country. And I was like, yeah, um, it was a hundred bucks round trip. It was like cheaper than the train ride. I wanted to go on for like the day trip within uh, Denmark. And so anyway, Google flights. So that's like city flexibility if you have the dates. If you want to go the other way too, you can be date flexible with a city in mind. So <clears throat> just go on and, you know, for you, if you're going like San Francisco or the San Jose airport um, to like New York or something, let's say you were coming out here um, and you could be flexible with your uh, travel dates, a calendar will come up and it'll ha- each day will have a different price underneath it. So rather than have to go to like kayak or Expedia and like constantly finagle the dates and like trying to find the cheapest fare and then remember like, Oh, did that day have cheaper? Um, it's sort of like the ITA matrix, which I've used a little bit, which is also good. You can see the matrix of the prices by date. So I'd say that I would also say, I try to take public transport as much to and from airports. That is a huge money saver. Um, like in New York, you can take basically a subway plus a quick air train. You can get to JFK faster than by cab for $8 instead of like 70 So that's a big one. Obviously, TSA pre-check, global entry. Definitely get that if you don't have it. And then I also love my trusty noise-canceling headphones. I take these things everywhere. They are, these are in-ear headphones, so they're not the big over-the-head ones. And um, I can send you, like, the uh, specific, I'll just say it because you're recording this, it's the Bose in-ear noise-canceling headphones. I think it's 20i. They're not cheap. They're, like, 300 bucks. But... Yeah, but I mean, it's like you buy once and they have great customer service. So like one of my ear like blew out, not my ear, the earphones blew out and uh, they sent me like a brand new thing right away. And it's something that I literally use multiple times every day. So it's totally worth it for me. But it's amazing noise. So if you're ever on a train or plane and like people are being noisy or annoying, you can like silence them out 100%. Use the uh, white noise application on your iPhone in tandem with the headphones and it'll block everything out. Or, yeah, and just in general. And then point two is you can roll them up and put them into your like jeans pocket. Whereas you can never do that with like the big bulky over your headphones. Okay. So those are some of my top travel hacks. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of the Adventure Days podcast. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, go check out episode number two where I interview Caroline on her travels through Italy and more. You can also see more at my website, adventuredays.com, and the Instagram account, at the Adventure Days. Talk to you guys soon.